Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning, open it to Genesis chapter 15, uh, and keep it open because we're going to look at some passages in Genesis chapter 12 and also in Genesis 17 this morning. Well, last week we were in Genesis chapter 9 and looking at God's covenant, His uh, promise-based relationship with Noah and with the, the rest of creation there as Noah emerges from the ark with his family and God makes a promise to him and to the earth never to flood the earth, never to destroy the earth again by flood because of the sinfulness of man. We saw that that was a covenant of preservation, that God is promising to, to preserve the earth so that, he can, so that he can ultimately save it as he sends his son Jesus. We saw last week a, a definition of what a covenant is. A definition of a covenant is a bond in blood, a life and death bond that is sovereignly administered, that is administered, put into place by God. Last week, we saw God working with one man, Noah, who was a representative, would be the representative for all humanity moving forward and how God would deal graciously over, not overlooking, but holding back his judgment, his right judgment against their sin until he could bring a savior. Now, this week, the, the scope of God's promises narrows a little bit. We go from, from uh, God making a covenant with one man who re- represents all of humanity to now one man, Abraham or Abram, uh, he gets a name. Name change in Genesis 17, God dealing now with one man who will be a representative of God's chosen people through whom a savior will come. As we turn our attention to God's word into Genesis chapter 15, I would ask that you would stand with me as we read God's word together. We're in all of Genesis chapter 15 this morning. Again, Moses, the, the author of Genesis writes this. In the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, uh, quick caveat. In chapter 15, the character Abraham is referred to as Abram. His name gets changed to Abraham in chapter 17. We'll look at that in just a moment. But just know that Abram is Abraham. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O oh, oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, 
the pieces of the animals that Abram had cut in half. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So here today we see God's, a second of God's covenants, a second, this covenant with uh, Abram, with Abraham. A covenant specifically to bless him with offspring, to bless the nations through him, to be his God perfectly. A promise which is ultimately and and completely fulfilled in Jesus, who is a son of Abraham. He comes from Abraham's lineage, who brings salvation for Jews and Gentiles, and who is God with us, Emmanuel. As we look at the covenant that God made with Abraham, we see, first of all, that it is a covenant of blessing covenant that God makes with Noah is a covenant of preservation. The covenant he makes with Abraham, Abram is a covenant of blessing. If you turn back maybe just a page in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, this is where God speaks to Abram for the first time when he calls to him. And there in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have the basic uh, uh, outline of the covenant that God makes to Abram, a covenant that's repeated in Genesis 15 and then affirmed again for a third time in Genesis 17. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we read this. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And and here's the promise, right? And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As we seek to understand the covenant that God makes with Abram, uh, we see that in, in three different ways. The promise plays itself out in three aspects. First of all, God promises to bless Abraham with offspring and a homeland, with children and a place to raise them. This is clear from the, God's first word to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, which we just read, right? I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so you'll be a blessing. Um, He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This same promise is reiterated in our text today in uh, uh, Genesis 15 and verse 5, where we read this, that the Lord brought Abram outside, said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able, so shall your offspring be. It's also reiterated in uh, Genesis 17, verses 5 and 6. You can read that on your own later. God promises to bless Abraham with offspring in a homeland. But secondly, he promises to bless the nations through Abraham. That's part of God's covenant, part of God's promise to bless the nations, to bless the peoples of the earth through Abraham. That's what we see in, in Genesis twelve three. right? I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's repeated again. And if you'll flip forward a couple pages to Genesis 17, verse 4, God says this, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And here we get Abraham's name change. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So not only will all the people of the earth be blessed through Abraham, but as God promises even here in Genesis 17, 4, that Abraham will be the father of a multitude of different kinds of people. This aspect of the promise is what causes God to change this man's name, Abram, which means great father, to Abraham, which means the father, literally the father of many peoples. The change in Abram's name is simple he, he, or subtle. He, he just gets a new syllable, Abram to Abraham. 
But, but the, the meaning of the name is significant. Abraham is not yet, in Genesis 17, he's not yet a father of many nations. Nor is he yet a blessing to all the world. He only has one son, and that one son is an illegitimate son. But by God's word, because God says so, Abraham is as good as such. He is as good as a blessing to the nations as God changes his name. His name change carries with it all of the promises from Genesis 12 and 15 into Genesis 17. The promise of offspring and of land and of of, uh, being a blessing to the nations, but also of the presence of God. The covenant with Abraham is threefold. It's to bless him with offspring in a homeland. It is to bless the nations through him. But third and finally, it is a promise for God to be Abram's God. There in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we find God uh, there as he calls Abram for the first time, doing all of the speaking. God is doing all of the instructing. Abram has, has no response to the Lord at that point. It is God who will take Abram and make him Abraham, who will take him to the promised land for him and his offspring to possess it. It's God who will make Abraham into a great nation. Into a great nation. It is God who will bless Abraham and curse his enemies. And it is God who will bless the nations of the world through Abraham. We saw in Genesis 9 last week with Noah that, that there God does all of the speaking. God is the primary actor. He's the primary. He's the hero of the text. He's the same hero of the the, this uh, event within, in the life of Abraham. In Genesis 15, verse 1, as we saw just a moment ago, God says this to Abram. He says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So God is the one who does all, who makes all the promises to Abram in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 15, we see that God is the one who will protect the man to whom he has made these promises. And then if you were to look at Genesis 17, verses 7 and 8, just turn your page over, you'll read this. God says this to Abram, Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout all their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you uh, and to your offspring after you the land of all your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So then twice, God promises to be Abraham's God. I will be God to you. I will be God to your offspring. In a world where many poor people worship many gods in Abram's day, lots of people had false gods and family gods and favorite gods in their home. The, the creator of the universe says to Abraham, I will be your God. Some might see this as a declaration of what God is commanding of Abraham. So as to say, you will worship only me. But I think in the context of the covenant that God is giving, there's, there's a transcending relational component, a transcending relational commitment between God and Abram, Abraham. God Almighty is saying to Abraham, I will be your God. I will be your God. There's much good that is bound up in this aspect of the promise to Abraham that God will will be uh, present with Abraham. He'll be a protection to Abraham. He'll be in relationship with Abraham. But the problem at the end of Genesis 15 and also at the end of Genesis 17 is that God has promised for Abraham to have offspring and a homeland. He's promised that Abraham will be a blessing to the nations. But Abraham, Abraham has no land and he has no children. He is relatively wealthy. 
It's a lot of people that travel in a nomadic sort of lifestyle, traveling around with him. He's got uh, uh, slaves or, or, or at least servants. Uh, Eliezer of Damascus may have been uh, the one that he wants to, to be his heir, may have been one of his uh, house servants. Abraham is relatively wealthy, but he has no future prospects that can help him to, that, that, that will actually pan out to, to fulfill the promise that God has made. Abraham has nothing. All he has in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 17 is this promise from God. He has no children of his own, just one illegitimate son. He has this promise from God to possess vast swaths of land, but all he has at this point is a relatively small camp in Hebron. Everything God has promised Abraham depends ultimately upon Abraham's offspring, on having children. You can't be a father of many nations if you're not a father. You can't, and the nations can't be blessed through you if you die without any, uh, any children or any offspring coming from you. And at 99 years old in Genesis 17, all Abraham has is God and a promise. But I want you to know, church, that that is not at all a bad thing. To have nothing at all but God and his promise is an infinitely good place to be. Look, Abraham had nothing at this point. Very, very little, relatively speaking, in terms of what, what could work out to be the fulfillment of God's promise to him in his life. But he had God and he had faith in this God who had made promises to him. Abraham, I don't think, was sure at all how God would work his promises out in his life. And yet we see Abraham trusting God, believing God, trusting in that promise. There's something here for us to, to learn from Abraham, I think. And that is this, that, that we can, that we ought to, whether you're a, a, a Christian or you're not yet a Christian, learn to trust your lot in life, whatever it is, with obedience and faith in God. Learn to trust your lot in life with obedience and faith to God. It, it, God will do what God has said that he will do. The purpose of trusting God, the purpose of being obedient to God, is not even to get stuff from him, but rather to be in relationship with him. Right? God says to Abraham, I will be your God. God's desire for you, friend, is to be your God, to be with you, to have relationship with you. That is the gift of God's promise, is to be in relationship with him. So, so trust your lot in life, whatever it is, with obedience and faith in God, not to get something from him, but for the joy of knowing and walking with him. Yeah. Friends, if all you have is God and his promise of salvation and eternal life, you're in a good place. Amen. If you're dirt poor and you've got nothing, literally nothing, but you've got God and his promise of salvation and eternal life, you've got everything. And look, I get it. We go through times in our life where we feel like we have nothing and, and, and we need, we look for something. We live in a culture that tells us if you don't have stuff, you have nothing. And there are maybe some of you, young men, young women, who want nothing more than to be married. But for this season in life, God has you single. Maybe you even feel like God has, has spoken to you confidently saying, yes, you will be married. I have a husband for you. I have a wife for you. Right? And you are eagerly expecting, anticipating for that person to come along. But until that time comes, friend, trust your lot in life with obedience and faith to God, knowing that His presence, His promise, Him, the, the relationship you have with Him is infinitely better than, than a spouse. Young man or young woman, maybe you feel like God has called you into ministry. Maybe you feel like God has called you to be a pastor or a missionary or 
um, uh, or, or a teacher or whatever the case might be. But it's not you're not there yet in life. You've got some school to go through and you're just anxious. You can't wait to do what God has called you to do. But there's stuff you've got to get through first. And you're just impatient. You want what what you feel God has called you to now. Let me just say to you, tr- stop a minute and breathe and trust God with your circumstances. Trust God with the lot that you have in life, with continued obedience to what he's called you to, with faith in who he is, not to get something from him and not to achieve something one day, but just for the joy of knowing and walking with God. God makes a covenant to Abraham, a covenant of blessing. But we see in Genesis 15 that, that, that here in our text today that, that Abraham gets to a point in his life where he, he doesn't have any children yet. And so he begins to call out to God and to say, how am, how am I supposed to know? How will I ever know that you're going to do what you said you'll do? I got no kids. And so God, God helps Abram here. God helps Abram by sealing this covenant with him. At this critical juncture in Abraham's life here in Genesis 15. He has no male heir. He has no child. He has relatively little land. Abraham is worried at this point that he will not live long enough to see the covenant fulfilled. Remember, God didn't call Abram until Abram was 75 years old. Looking at Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, we read this. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and so then a member of my household will be my heir. At this point, Abram is is ready to say, Hey, hey God, we don't have any kids yet. Don't have any likely prospects of having kids, so um, let's do this, God. You you fulfill your promise, but do it through Eliezer. He's a trusted servant of mine, and uh, I trust him with my household. I'll, I'll give him everything that I have when I die. You fulfill the promise through him. But God flatly denies Abraham's request. And instead, he takes Abraham outside at night to ask him to do some stargazing. Right? There, God, God says, look to the stars. Count them if you can. Now, living in Albuquerque, where there's a lot of streetlights and light pollution, you probably could count the stars. Uh, maybe some of you lived in cities where you can't see the stars at all, so counting them is really easy. There are none. Uh, but... But if you've ever had an opportunity to get away from the city, go out to the country or up in the mountains, kind of away from the lights and everything, and you look up into the night sky on maybe a night where the moon is not out, all you see are stars. Try counting. The, I mean, that's, and that's what Abram would have seen. And maybe even, maybe even, even grander than that. So God takes him outside and says, count the stars if you can, Right? That's how many of that, that's that's how many your offspring will be. So Abram, over seventy years old, maybe approaching eighty or older than eighty at this point, has this promise from God that he's going to have kids and a lot of them. There in verse six, after God makes this promise to, to Abram, reaffirms this promise. We read one of the greatest sentences, maybe in all of Scripture, that Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him, counted it to Abram's account as righteousness. Abram Abram believes God's promise and God credits it to him. Abraham, who is a sinner by nature and separated from God, who deserves God's just punishment for his sin, because he believes God and believes in his promise, is counted righteous and right with God because of his faith. And then to confirm, so God seals this this covenant uh, with Abraham uh, with a sacrifice. And that's what we read in the rest of Genesis chapter 15. 
sealing this covenant with a sacrifice. We said last week that a covenant is a bond in blood. It's a life and death relationship that is divinely or sovereignly administered. Here we're going to see that take on a really uh, graphic uh, illustration, right, of what it means to have a, a covenant to be a bond in blood. So God here in these verses instructs Abraham, beginning in verse 7, to take a cow and a goat and a ram and two birds, to take the larger animals, to cut them in half uh, and to lay them uh, aside from one another. The birds he doesn't cut in half because birds are small, so you just you kill them, but you send them over. So here's what's going on here. This is a really strange thing. And um, many of you who have never cut a covenant with somebody else are probably wondering what's going on here. So several thousand years ago in the ancient Near East, when two individuals, two parties, would come together to essentially enter into a, a kind of contractual agreement, a, a covenant agreement, this is what they would do. They would take an animal, or maybe several, uh, as we see in the case here, you would slaughter the animal, cut them in half, and then you would dig a trench in the ground, and you would take the blood of the animal that you killed, and you'd pour all of the blood of the animal in the, in the trench, and you would take the halves of the animal and put them on either side of the trench, and then each of the parties of the covenant of the contract would take their turns uh, walking through the blood of the covenant, the blood of the contract, and as they do, they're repeating the terms of the contract and ending it with saying, or the terms of the covenant, and end it by saying, may this much and more be done to me if I violate this covenant. That is to say, may I be cut in half and my blood spilled on the ground if I break this covenant. In the church, we speak of marriage as a covenant relationship. I asked my wife if we could cut a bull in half and walk through the blood. I don't know. I didn't really. But, but could you imagine if we took covenant marriage with the seriousness that covenants were taken thousands of years ago? So here's what's going on here. God tells Abraham, take these animals, right? Slaughter them, cut them in half, pour the blood in the trench. And so Abraham does all of that. He sets up the, the covenant. He sets up the, the, he gets the contract written down. All that's left are the signatures, right? And then at dusk, as the sun goes down, God causes his deep sleep to fall on Abraham, wherein Abraham hears the Lord giving a preview of what is going to happen, not, uh, not necessarily in Abraham's life, but in the life of his offspring, of the people who will come after him. God gives a summary of ultimately the events that we see that play out through the rest of Genesis into Exodus, all the way through Deuteronomy and into Joshua, where the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, are taken into captivity as slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And then they are delivered... Uh, out of slavery in Egypt, and they make their way to the land that God has promised to Abraham, but they don't get there until the fourth generation, God says. Or we, we know uh, from Numbers, the book of Numbers, that the people of Israel sin even after they're brought out of Egypt, and so they have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years while the older generations die off, the unfaithful generations die off before they can enter into the promised land. So God gives Abraham a preview of coming attractions in this vision, and then later that night... The text says a flaming torch and a smoking fire pot, like a, kind of like a portable oven, like a, a clay bowl you would burn a fire in. These two things pass through the blood of the covenant in between the sacrificed animals. Regularly throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus, God's presence is regularly pictured as fire in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, we have the burning bush, right? This bush, bush which is on fire but is not consumed. In Exodus 13, we have a pillar of fire, God's presence, leading the, uh, the, Israel, uh, the Israelites out of Egypt and then, ulti- and then through the wilderness later. In Exodus 19, we have fire and smoke on top of Mount Sinai where God is giving the law. 
So this flaming torch, this smoking fire pot are what? Nothing but the presence of the Lord, God himself, passing through the pieces of the covenant. God himself walking through the blood of the covenant and saying, may this much and more be done to me if I fail to keep this covenant. Do you see what's going on here? God, in this event, God is showing that he's willing to take upon himself every responsibility to fulfill his promises to his people. Abram doesn't walk through the covenant. Only God does. God is putting himself on the hook to make sure that his promise to Abraham is fulfilled. But this moment, this event of God passing through this covenant, passing through this blood and promising to do for Abraham all that he promised to do also serves as a shadow for us. It serves as a, a road sign, an example of another sacrifice that God will make to ensure an even greater promise. We see in Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God in human form, the God of the universe, sealing and ensuring a greater promise than a homeland and offspring, sealing and promising the sealing, the promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And this Jesus does not by passing through another set of ritually prepared animals, but by giving his own body to be broken, his own blood to be spilled for the purchase of our salvation. God puts himself on the hook to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. And God puts himself on the hook to fulfill his promise of salvation for you and for me when Christ dies on the cross for our sins. Friends, we can know this this morning and, and practice this. We can have and we ought to show reliance upon God's faithfulness to keep his promise of salvation to us in Jesus. You should rely upon God's faithfulness to keep his promise of salvation to you in Jesus. Why? Because God has passed through the blood of the covenant, so to speak, for salvation. He has taken it upon himself to provide the means of it. Just as Abraham placed his faith in the God who put himself on the hook to keep his promise, so also is God calling you today to put your trust in Jesus Christ. His perfect sinless son who died on the cross and was raised from the dead for your salvation. Jesus' death sealed God's promise to save all those who would trust in him. So, friend, why would you not trust a God who is so good to not only make the promise, but to ensure that he'll keep the promise? God condescends to a, a doubting, confused, misunderstanding Abram by sealing his covenant with Abraham with a sacrifice. But he also seals his covenant with a sign. He gives Abram a, a reminder of the covenant. I feel like I need to give um, an audience warning for what comes next. Parents, I may give you a lot of questions to answer for your children this afternoon. So with your, uh, in your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14 where we see God giving Abram a sign to remind him of the covenant. We saw last week God gives uh, to the earth and to Noah the sign of the rainbow in the clouds, right, to serve as a reminder that God will never destroy the earth through flood again. And here he gives Abram, Abraham a sign of the covenant he has made. Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. We'll read 9 through 11. God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So, right, God in Genesis 15 passes through the covenant sacrifice. And here in 17, he gives Abraham this sign, this reminder 
uh, to, to remember the covenant. Signs, we said last week, tend to be given in close correspondence to the nature or the context of their respective covenants. So the, the covenant sign of the rainbow appears in the clouds, either before or after it rains, to remind those who see it that God has remembered his promise not to destroy the earth by flood again. And here, the covenant sign of circumcision, which is given on Abraham's reproductive organ, is likewise no coincidence. God isn't playing around here. The very nature of the covenant to Abraham is that he will be the father of many nations. By his own son, through his wife, Sarah. And at 99 years old, Abraham is yet to produce offspring with his wife. And the fact that he is 99 years old in Genesis 17 and has not yet produced a son with his wife makes this sign of circumcision a particularly intimate one, does it not? In this way, the sign itself becomes for Abraham and for all of his children after him an ever-present and intimate reminder of God's promise. This sign will become a central part of Abraham's offspring's identity, right? Of, of the people of Israel's cultural and national heritage. This sign of circumcision will be established as a requirement for Israel in the law of Leviticus, we'll see later. Circumcision as a sign, though, is not saving. Just because someone bears the sign of the covenant with Abraham does not mean that he is actually a covenant participant. It does not gain righteousness with God. Righteousness, we saw earlier in Genesis 15, verse 6, is not by performing the sign of circumcision, but by faith and trusting God's promises. So while the sign of circumcision identified a person physically as part of God's covenant people, it was a spiritual circumcision of the heart that God really desired. Physical circumcision only, only is to reflect an intentional, personal, on-purpose circumcision of the heart. A a changing, a marking of your heart uh, for faithfulness to God. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we... We read Moses saying this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Uh, the Apostle Paul picks up on the importance uh, on making the important distinction between physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He says, No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter of the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul hits on this again. Right? This is important for Paul to drill down for the early Christians because uh, being circumcised was such a, 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 an integral part of being an Israelite. And Paul is saying that you're not, an, you're not a true Israelite. You're not a son of the promise. You're not a keeper of the covenant just because you have this thing done in the flesh. Uh, what God sees is the heart. And so in Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, we read this. In him, that is in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So God gives this sign of circumcision to serve as a physical identifier for Abraham and for his offspring that they are a people who trust the promises of God to Abraham. But for those who are children of the promise of God's salvation in Jesus, for Christians, right? The, the primary sign that you are a believer in Christ, a recipient of God's promises, is that you have faith in Christ, 
But there are also physical ways of identifying yourself with God's people. There are physical ways of identifying yourself with those who have also trusted Christ. So, friends, as we see Abraham physically identifying himself with trust in God's promises, those who are in Jesus, those who are saved by faith in Christ, ought to, in other ways, visibly identify themselves with God's people. Certainly, we understand that, that uh, circumcision of the heart is what is saving. Having your heart marked off for God, set apart for God with faith in Christ. But God deals in families. He dealt with Noah and his family. He dealt with Abraham and his family. God deals with people, groups of people, not just with individuals. So, friend, understand this, that when God saved you by your faith in Jesus, he didn't save you to be an island, of, uh, an island Christian unto yourself. He saved you to be a part of a family. He saved you to join the community of believers who are called Christians, who all share in this mutual faith in Christ. So Christian, how do you intentionally identify with the family of those who are saved by faith in Jesus? What, how do you physically, visibly identify with those who bear the name of Christ and trust in him? Here at First West, we do this in, in, in at least three ways, three specific ways. First of all, through meaningful church membership. All of you who have joined your life to the life of this church have done a few things. One, you've said, I am trusting Jesus as my Savior, right? My faith is in Him. I'm trusting in Him for salvation and nothing else. Right? You attend church regularly as part of being a member. You give of your tithes as God has called us to be generous with what He has given to us. We practice meaningful church membership here, meaning that, that all who are members of this church are all uh, uh, professing believers in Jesus, and we're members on purpose, and we take that seriously. It means something to us. We're not members of this church like we're members at Costco, and we just go whenever we want, or we have what we want on sale. We go there, we're joining a family. But there are two other ways that we visibly, physically identify ourselves with the family of uh, Christ, the family of Christians, one through meaning, first of all, through meaningful membership, but then secondly, through baptism. Baptism is this, this physical uh, act of being dunked in the water to show that we are buried with Christ in a death like his and raised to new life in a life like his. It's no coincidence that, uh, that for the history of the church, baptism and membership have been so closely united together. Baptism isn't a private thing ever in the context of the New Testament. It's always public and it's always done by other believers. You have a group of people who are collectively giving their assent, giving their affirmation, saying, yes, we, we believe that you believe in Christ and, and we are welcoming you into the faith family as they are dunked under the water, right? Uh, and, then, and then raised back up. Baptism to, from the individual to the church says, I trust Jesus like you trust Jesus. And baptism from the perspective of the church to the individual being baptized is saying, we're going to help you follow Jesus just like we expect you to help us follow Jesus. We don't baptize people all the, you know, uh, one person over and over and over again. We do it once. It's a one-time sort of sign. It's a one-time sort of putting on the jersey of Christianity, if you will. But another way that we show our, our membership uh, in the family of faith and, and visibly identify with other Christians is through the taking of the Lord's Supper. This we don't do just once, but this we do often. Right? God, uh, Christ, on uh, the night before he was betrayed, gave to his disciples some bread and cup to drink. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant, my blood of the covenant, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And so anywhere between 12 and 16 times a year, we as a church family, at least on a monthly basis, sometimes more often, share in the Lord's Supper together. Those of us who have committed our lives to the, the family that, of faith that is here at First West, who have been baptized in, uh, in a similar uh, manner of faith, not all of us have been baptized here, some of us have been baptized other places, but we recognize those, those baptisms as long as they're done in the same uh, faith and, and same sort of mindset understanding of baptism. We share in the Lord's Supper together, visibly identifying ourselves as Christians and as members of this particular family of faith. So Christian, I'll ask you again, how are you identifying with a family of those who are saved by faith in Jesus? Are you a member of our church who has been baptized, but you're not participating regularly in the Lord's Supper? Or maybe you are a believer and, and you've been here and you've shared in the Lord's Supper with us. Maybe you've even been baptized before. You're a regular attender, been here for a long time, have no intention of going anywhere else. But you've not ever joined this family formally. I invite you today as we have our, our time of response this morning. If, if God is placing on your heart a, a desire to, to pursue baptism or to su- pursue membership in the life of our body, come talk to me this morning. We'll set up a time later on in the week or in the weeks to come to talk about those things because we think that family identification is really important here, particularly as we identify as believers. So God gives this covenant of blessing to Abraham to, to give him offspring and a land and, and to bless the nations through him and to be his God. He seals that covenant right with a sacrifice and he gives Abraham a sign to remember it by, a sign that will serve for generations to come. But what does all of this have to do with Jesus, especially at Christmas? As we look at Christ and prepare our hearts for, for, for Christmas, for Christ's advent, we see that ultimately, as we look through the pages of Scripture, and starting with Christ, we look back to Genesis, we see that Jesus is the blessing of Abraham. Jesus is the content of the promise that God gives to Abraham. First of all, he is Abraham's offspring. He is Abraham's offspring. We've seen that all of the promise to Abraham hinges upon the promise of children and a family. And if Abraham doesn't have children, he can't, have, he can't be the father of many nations. He can't uh, ever have any hope to bless the world through his offspring. We have here a promise of seed to Abraham. That word seed is the same word that God uses in Genesis three fifteen When he promises that the seed of the woman, Eve, will crush the seed of the serpent. That word seed or offspring is a word filled with expectation of redemption throughout the Old Testament. Expectation of promises fulfilled and should not be lost on, uh, lost on us in Abraham's life. The constant question running through Genesis, particularly in Abraham's life, is this. Who is the seed? Who is the promised offspring? Who's the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent? And by the time we get to the end of Genesis, though there are many people who will trace their ancestry to Abraham, we're no closer to answering that question, who is the seed? The serpent crusher is not yet on the scene. Until we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew begins his gospel this way. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is how Matthew begins his gospel, his story of Jesus' life, by saying, This is the family tree of Jesus, the promised Savior of the Jews, and of the Gentiles, a son of David, the seed, the offspring of Abraham. Paul picks up on the same reality in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, when he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, Paul says, who is Christ? As a fulfillment of the promise, as the very heart of the promise to, to, uh, of, a, of God to Abraham, that Abraham believes. It is Jesus who is Abraham's offspring. He's the one we're looking for, looking forward to in Genesis. But as the object of Abraham's faith, or, well, there, I just got ahead of myself. As the heart of the promise, Jesus is the object of Abraham's faith. Why? For three reasons. You'll remember the promise to Abraham, right? You'll have, uh, you'll have a homeland and offspring. We've already dealt with the offspring. You'll have a homeland. You'll bless the nations, and I will be God to you. Jesus is the object of Abraham's faith. Why? Because he secures for us a better homeland. He secures for Abraham a better homeland. Abraham was looking forward to a land with boundaries, a a geographical place. But because the promise of Abraham points to larger realities beyond itself, like all of God's promises do, the land that he's looking forward to is also a sign. It's a, a type. It's a shadow of a greater homeland that God has in store. Through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Christian, God has secured and sealed a heavenly city that he himself has prepared for you. God, through Christ, takes his covenant to Abraham and he delivers an even better result. Eternal life on this earth when he has made it new and freed it from uh, sin when Christ comes again. I would invite you to read Hebrews chapter 11, specifically verses 8 through 16 this week, to see how, uh, how the writer of Hebrews fleshes out this understanding of Jesus being the promise of a greater homeland. But Jesus is the object of Abraham's faith for the reason that he, it is he also who blesses the nations perfectly and ultimately. It's hard to know just what Abraham thought of God's promise that the nations would be blessed through him. But one thing we can know is that through Jesus, the son of Abraham, there is not one nation, not one tribe, not one people group that is excluded from God's plan of salvation through Jesus, the son of Abraham. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, as Jesus gives his final marching orders to the disciples before he ascends into heaven, we read this. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus will fulfill his promise to to the disciples that he will make Uh, disciples of every nation. And we see the fulfillment previewed for us in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where we read this. John the Apostle, in this vision, this revelation of the Lord to him, writes this. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, were standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God, who is Christ, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus blesses the nations perfectly. Jesus blesses the nations with all of the blessings and more that God has ever intended for Abraham. He brings them, he brings the nations into a right relationship with God as they trust in him. But third and finally, Jesus is the content of the promise. He's the, 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 the uh, object of Abraham's faith because he is God with us. God promised Abraham that he would be God to him. Remember that? In his own day, and even for his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob, God was near to Abraham's family. 
God is God to the Israelites and to anyone and, and to any person outside of the camp of Israel who would fear and worship him, even through all of the Old Testament. But in Christ, in Jesus, God takes his promise to Abraham and ramps it up to be not only God to us, but in Christ, God with us. At his birth as a baby named Jesus, the eternal son of God, only begotten of God the Father, adds humanity to his eternal existence and literally became God with us, Emmanuel. Friends, my invitation to you this morning, as we look at this covenant with Abraham, right, to make him great, bless the nations, give him a homeland, to be God to him, seeing that all of the promise to Abraham is ultimately and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus, and then some, this Christmas season, friend, receive Christ the blessing to Abraham. Receive him. This is not just for, for those who are not believers. This is a call for you who are believers in Jesus. Receive Christ today as the gift of Christmas, the gift of a lifetime, the gift of eternity. There's nothing greater to have in this life or in the next than Christ. And God has given him to us, to be with us, to be among us, to be like one of us, yet without sin, so that he could die in your place for your sins and be raised from the dead, so that if you trust in him, as you place your faith in him, you can have the hope of also being raised from the dead. To not just live for a little while, but to live forever in the presence of the God of Abraham, who made this promise to Abraham, who fulfills it in Christ, and who extends it to you, if you'll only trust Jesus. Let's pray.